This morning we are turning to the book of Proverbs for our Old Testament reading. Actually to two different chapters. Uh, First we will turn to Proverbs chapter 23. And read there the first five verses. This is the word of the living God. When you sit down to dine with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are a man of great appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for it is deceptive food. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. And now turning over to Proverbs chapter 30. Looking at verses 7 through 9. Two things I asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. That I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Now in the New Testament, we are turning to Mark chapter 4, and this morning I'm going to read verse 7, which is the parable, and then verses 18 and 19, which is Jesus' interpretation. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. And it yielded no crop. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word. But the worries of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Pray and ask God's blessing. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have determined to sow that word into our hearts. Give us, Lord, clear and unfettered attention that we might not lose out on the blessings you have in store for us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In our examination of the parable of the sower, we have considered two types of unfruitful soil. The first was that hard-packed soil alongside of the roadway. If you recall, the seed fell on that hardened ground and it did nothing. The birds of the air came and ate the seed as it rested atop the ground. 
The second fruitless soil that we looked at was the rocky ground. And due to the limestone bedrock just beneath the surface of the ground, there were built-in problems for the seed. It would sprout quickly and enthusiastically. It held the promise of being the best of the best. But that impression was not to last long. As the sun grew hot, those young plants were scorched and they withered away to nothing at all. Another failed attempt. We come today to the third and final fruitless soil. The ground that is littered with thorns. And as we take a deeper look at the thorny ground, we will notice that this soil is also unproductive. And so three of these four soils are a failure in terms of actual production. By telling this story as he did, Jesus was preparing his church for the sad reality that many people will not respond positively to the word of God. They will fail to listen. They will refuse to take it to heart. They will not produce a crop. Such circumstances can be deeply discouraging to the faithful preacher of God's word. Questions begin arising about the efficacy of preaching or the possible need to edit the message preached. One way that this happens is to simply drop out any and all references to sin from the proclamation of God's word. In an attempt to draw non-believers into church services, these folk will pare off the rough edges of the word of God. They will attempt to be even more positive and winsome than Jesus himself was. But that approach never works. The problem lies not in a defective message or in the deficiencies of preaching. No, the problem lies within human hearts. Specifically here, hearts which are infested with thorns. So as we consider this third soil, I want to start with seed sown among thorns. Then we're going to look at the distracted heart and finish with the unfruitful life. Once again, the storyline is simple and clear. The sower sows seed, and some seed lands among the thorns. The ground is already infested with these noxious plants, and they lie there in wait to pose a problem for the newly sown seed. One might wonder how those thorns got there in the first place. What was it that caused thorns to be resident in the soil? And the answer to the question is as old as the world itself. It's man's sin and God's curse upon the human race. Back in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord cursed Adam as follows. 
Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat it all the days of your life, but thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You know, it's not merely physical thorns and physical thistles that were visited upon Adam and his posterity, but spiritual thorns and spiritual thistles. They too were inflicted because of the justice of God against man's sin. So as the seed rests where it is sown, germination takes place. The combination of the soil, the sun, and moisture cause those little seeds to spring to life. Tiny roots go down into the soil, and the plant begins its slow but steady growth. Perhaps there is even some hope that at points these plants will one day come to maturity and that they will produce a significant crop for the farmer. But even while the good plants are beginning to grow, something else is taking place on that very same patch of ground. Thorns also grow up in order to attack the small desirable plants. There is a great competition which breaks out between the good plants and the thorns. The thorns wish to dominate, and so they seek to choke out these good little plants. Competition for soil, for nutrients, and for moisture turn this ground into a battlefield. It becomes the survival of the fittest. As the thorns grow, they gradually win the struggle. They choke out the plants as they, which have sprouted up from the seed. If you have any question or doubt, ask a gardener. What is the joy of the gardener? It's harvesting food from his own garden. What is the bane of the gardener? It's the weeds. And weeding, and weeding, and weeding. And just when you think you've got all the weeds out of your garden, there's a new crop the next morning. And it's this constant battle between your plants and these weeds, these thorns. Well, as we consider this scenario, the thorns are not necessarily obvious to the sower of the seed. The thorns themselves may be seeds at the time of planting. They do not show their full potential for causing problems immediately. But the fact of the matter is that there is pre-existing problems that will predictably and inevitably cause trouble. These problems may lie invisible to sight and even remain dormant for a time. But they are still there and they will show themselves. Now if the problem 
of the rocky soil was shallowness and a lack of deep roots. The problems of the thorny ground is a distracted heart. A heart that is preoccupied with many rival things. Herein lies the problem. Other interests, other desires are competing with the good seed for priority in the heart of the hearer. Now those other matters may be legitimate things which are not inherently sinful. Or they might be sinful things which are wrong even in small doses. Whether these competing interests are sinful or not, they demand the attention, the devotion, and the interest of the hearer of the word of God. These thorns will not take no for an answer. They demand to be heard and for the heart to pay attention to them. Well, what are these thorns? There are three things that Jesus points out to us here in his interpretation of the parable. The worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. Worries of the world, deceitfulness of riches, and desires for other things. All three of these things constitute what one commentator calls thought problems. He writes, What is at issue here is not so much the possession of wealth in itself, but rather the mental attitude it engenders. And all of these competitors engender mental attitudes, worries, deceitfulness, desires. And thus the problem lies in the heart and the mind of the hearer. The first specific issue is the worries of the world. Things of this world naturally produce worries. Let's take a house, for instance. You buy a house. You are thrilled with it at first. It's all that you've hoped for, and everything about it seems to satisfy you. But then you notice that there's a little water down in the basement. It's not much water, and it's quickly and easily cleaned up, but that fact begins working on your mind. Why was there water in the basement? Where did it come from? Is there a crack in my foundation that lets in groundwater? Is this a new problem, or has this been the case all along? How long has it been happening? And so you're pondering your wet basement when you notice that the lights in your kitchen tend to flicker at times. Ever so slightly, but it's clearly a flicker. And this kicks off another train of thought about possible potential electrical problems. And so it goes on and on. The house of your dreams produces an incredible, 
increasing avalanche of worries. It consumes more and more of your time and your energy. It dominates your thoughts. Your mind is constantly mulling over how to repair these now obvious problems and how much is it all going to cost. And this is just one of the examples of the worries of this world. But let me throw some other categories out that tend to cause people to worry. How about your health? Do you ever think about your health? That odd pain that comes and goes that you can't really explain. And when you tell your doctor about it, he doesn't really know what to say either. Or maybe it's relationships. Do you ever worry about your marriage? Do you ever think about that child who seems to be increasingly detached from the family? Maybe it's your job. You think about your work. Do you spend time and energy worrying about your performance? What your boss thinks of you? Is this going to be a long-term employment or am I going to be out in the street looking for something new? Maybe you're thinking about your cash flow. Am I going to be able to pay the bills in the coming months? And if I can't pay the bills, well, what then? Where do I turn? And there's just so many more. Maybe it's retirement. Do you think about, are you going to have enough to live on when you retire? Maybe it's your vehicle. What is that strange sound coming from underneath my car every time I back up? Maybe it's your pet. What is Whimsy going to do next? Or your hobbies, or education, or politics. What's going to happen with the 2024 election? And we could just roll out more and more because this world is a factory which produces endless opportunities to worry Jesus summarizes this in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor your body as to what you will put on. Is, li is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Because these are the very things that the Gentiles worry over. So the worries of the world, they crowd in on us. And we say, I don't want to worry. I don't want to be constantly obsessed with these concerns. I find it so hard to fend them off. They become an overwhelming distraction. That's the first thorn, the worries of the world. The second thorn is the deceitfulness of riches. How much do I have? How much do I need? How much do I want? Will wealth finally satisfy me? John D. Rockefeller was asked about this, how much is enough? And his answer was just one more dollar. There's never enough. Riches are a cruel master. They demand our full attention, 
our continuous energy, our constant work. More, 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 they cry. And yet, riches are never the answer to the desires of our hearts. They never truly satisfy us so as to leave us finally fully contented and at rest. That's why Jesus says, it's the deceitfulness of riches. They promise you something. Get us and you'll be set. You won't have any worries at all. Your life will be easy street if you just have enough. I don't know about you, but I've known some very rich people who have been deeply, deeply unhappy. Very dissatisfied. Never at ease. And all of their wealth, which was enormous, never produced satisfaction. Not once. Because it can't. So the deceitfulness of wealth is a thorn that exists in American culture especially. We are so geared towards material affluence. And this thorn grows wild in the soil of American thought. As much as we'd like to say, but we're Christians, we're not touched by American priorities. We are American Christians, and we are touched by it. And if we are to be honest, this is on our minds and our hearts far more than it ought to be. And we have kind of sort of bought into the idea, money solves everything. You just need more of it. And rare, rare is the person who says, thanks but no thanks, I'm not buying that scheme. I don't believe money is the solution to everything. How many Americans really think that? How many Americans would really say that? And we as a culture are given over to materialism. It's one of the other gods that we often put before the true and the living God. And not to put too fine a point on it, but it is often the reason that people choose to work on Sunday rather than attend church. Because they can make money. And they might even make time and a half. Because it's the weekend. And if I can get time and a half, why would I say no in order to just stay at home and maybe go to church? The deceitfulness of riches as an alternate God in this world. In a similar vein, a very similar vein, is the third thorn, the desires for other things. It's what one commentator characterizes as the constant desire for more. This is the insatiable desire, the yearning for material assets, 
with the dream that life really does consist in the abundance of possessions. It'd be great to have a boat. I'd like to have two boats, maybe three boats. A cottage in the woods would be wonderful. A big cottage would be better. And three or four cottages on different lakes would be the bee's knees. Cars. Oh, I like cars. I'm going to build garages to house my cars. Maybe I'll have one car per day. So I can drive a different car every day of the week. I'll buy old cars. I'll buy new cars. I'll buy standard cars. I'll buy fancy cars. I'll fill my life with vehicles. You know, this constant lust for more and more and more. And you say, when is it ever going to stop? And the answer is, never! Never! It's devouring you. And there's always that promise that this one thing that you've had your eye on, this is going to be it. I would venture to guess there's many children in our country who experience this on Christmas morning. They wanted that one toy so very badly. And mom and dad knew it. Had nothing to do with some guy from the North Pole with a red suit. Mom and Dad got the toy. And when the box came open, there was just this sheer joy. Ah, I've got it. But did that joy last for a day, two days, a week, a month? And pretty soon the batteries have worn out. Or the toy has broken. Or you've played with it often enough to realize it's just another stupid toy. But the next one, the next one is going to be it. And so having moved past this fraud, I'm going to set my sights on the real deal and maybe I'll get that for my birthday. And this is just how American consumerism, materialism, call it what you will, that's how it works. You watch the TV. You're watching the commercials. You're being told that your life will be better if you get product X. Who knows, maybe product X grows more hair on your head. Or maybe it's the best beer that's ever been brewed. Or maybe it's that brand new shiny car that they're advertising with great financing available. And we, we take it hook, line, and sinker and we say, yes, I've discovered it. What we've been looking for. I have finally found it. You get it. And it's an empty bag laughing at you. And in the bottom of the bag it says, try again, sucker. And we just have to have more and more and more. And it consumes us. It consumes us. I saw a very 
clear vision of this on Friday. As we were cleaning up Mom's house, shutting it for the time being, and looking at all the stuff she's accumulated over her 80 years of life. And we're thinking, how do we get rid of this stuff? It has a lot of sentimental value to my mother-in-law, but it has no real value. Couldn't sell it, couldn't hardly give it away on eBay. And so what's going to happen? Goodwill, here we come. And then I get home, and on Saturday I'm looking at the boxes and boxes of stuff in my house and thinking one day it's going to be my kids saying, how do we get rid of all dad's junk? Papa has just created this mountain of meaningless stuff. And you see, that's what it produces. And we don't take any of it with us. And none of it has lasting value. These are thorns which fill our lives and threaten to overwhelm us. Now, the inescapable reality, according to our Lord Jesus, is that these worries and desires and this deceitfulness will enter in and choke out the Word of God so that it becomes unfruitful, bringing no grain to maturity. D.A. Carson says it very plainly. The idea is clear. Worries about worldly things or devotion to wealth snuff out spiritual life. Worries about worldly things or devotion to wealth snuff out spiritual life. That is true. That is evidently true. J.C. Ryle speaks along the same line. He says, The things of this world form one of the greatest dangers which beset a Christian's path. The money, the pleasures, the daily business of the world are so many traps to catch souls. Thousands of things which in themselves are innocent become, when followed to excess, little better than soul poisons and helps to hell. Open sin is not the only thing that ruins souls. In the midst of our families, in the pursuit of our lawful callings, we need to be on our guard. Unless we watch and pray, these temporal things may rob us of heaven and smother every sermon we hear. We may live and die as thorny hearers. And more specifically, these competing interests squeeze out the word from our minds and our hearts. William Hendrickson presses this very point in his commentary. He says, Hearts filled with worry with respect to the workaday world, beclouded by dreams about riches and, Mark adds, the desire for other things, thwart any influence for good that might otherwise proceed from the entrance of the kingdom message. Such hearts are preoccupied. 
They have no room for calm and earnest meditation on the Word. Should any such serious study and reflection nevertheless attempt to gain entrance, it would immediately be choked off. And you know, this might be happening right now, real time. What have you been thinking about for the last 30 minutes? The sermon? I hope so. Or your possessions? Or a worry you have about that water in your basement? Or how much money you currently have in your bank account? And how much more money you would like to have in your bank account? Or how you need that one thing you saw on TV yesterday? Need, need. And right here, while the word is being proclaimed, the thorns are reaching in and squeezing you and saying, Stop thinking about the word you're hearing. Put it out of your mind. We are more important. We matter more than this word that you're hearing. Well, let's be honest as we think about this. Fruitless Christianity is neither genuine nor legitimate. To have a life which bears absolutely no fruit whatsoever for God's glory or for God's kingdom might seem outwardly religious, but it's not at all Christian. Jesus clearly and plainly desires that his people would bear much good fruit. He makes the point in John 15 and the extended teaching on Christ the vine. He says in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may be, that it may bear more fruit. The fruitless branch is taken away. It's burned in the fire. It's worthless. But the fruitful branch is pruned to make it even more fruitful. And then in verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So as we abide in him and he abides in us, what is the necessary result? We bear much fruit. Apart from him, we can do nothing whatsoever. But in him, we will be fruitful. And then in verse 8 of that same chapter, My Father is glorified in the, by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. How do you gain assurance? How do you prove that you are a disciple? You bear much fruit, which brings glory to God. But fruitless living is absolutely not Christian. That's why these thorns are so dangerous. As they reach into our minds and hearts and squeeze us, as they attack the seed, and as they kill the seed, 
they leave us fruitless. Which is to say, leaves us outside of the kingdom. So what must we do? How shall we then live? I think we must all strive to put off worldliness, to put away the love of money, and to squelch that insatiable desire for more and more and better stuff. We must be humbly content with what we have and we must set our minds on things above. As we prayerfully approach God, we want our minds to be free and clear so we can concentrate and meditate upon the Word of God that it can send its roots down into our lives as we saw last week. We need the calm and earnest meditation on the word of the Lord, the serious study and reflection upon the law of liberty so that we can become the effectual doers of the word that put into practice what we learn and thus we bear fruit. Well, as we have been looking at these three fruitless soils, there could be a great temptation to say, well, you know, there's not much hope for me. This is all very negative, isn't it? Ah, but wait. The good soil is coming next week. To be continued. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the warnings of your word against the deceitfulness of riches and the worries of this life and the desire for more and more things. Set our hearts free from these entanglements. Kill these thorns that threaten to choke us out. Lord, we long to be more and more fruitful for the glory of God and for the good of our own souls. Help us in this, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.